the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, today we're going to continue our study in the book of John. We call it the Gospel of John. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them up to John chapter 2, if you will. And if you came without a Bible, that's okay. There's some Bibles in the chairs under your seats there, or you could follow along in your worship folder. I want to read to you the passage we're going to go through today, because I believe it has some tremendous insights if we want to read through it collectively. And as we do, I want you not only to read about a miracle that the Lord has done so it becomes a story of a miracle, I want you to know a little bit more behind that. And that's what I'm hoping to open up as we go through John chapter 2, verses 1 through verse 11, and maybe a little bit with verse 12. Would you follow along as I read this to you, beginning at verse 1? It goes like this. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots that set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you, you've kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this he went down to Capernaum and his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there a few days. And the story goes on and we'll take that up next week. Well, as I look through this passage of Scripture, you do a lot of research. You go through the historical writing. You find out geographically where Cana was. You do a study of the miracles. And there are some great scholars that say that there are seven miracles in John. And others say that there is eight in John. Right now, I'm just concerned with the one. And this is the first one here at Cana. And of all the miracles that Jesus would start out with, what does he start out doing? He takes water and he turns it into wine. And as any good expositor would do, he would like to give you a title, something you can hang on to maybe as the main picture. And so as I went through other writers and what they had put together as a title, I came across some very weird titles of this sermon. One guy called it, Do What Mama Says. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Another one says, What to do when the wine runs out. Another one said, Keep that party going. Another one said, Got wine? Well, as I went through all of these, it seemed like most of the writers were putting so much emphasis upon this wine thing 
that I think they were missing the whole point of the story. And you know, it's not difficult to understand what is the point of him doing this miracle. But I want you to stay with me through this entire message because at the end I'm going to show you the two main results of why this is found in Scripture. And I pray that all of us would go through this story, understand some of the information behind it, but that we would own these two reasons of why this was given. So you want to stay with me because we're going to cover that. But they all got it on this wine thing. And there is the changing of the water and the wine. It's all there. But I think there's a lot more. And that's why I don't want us to miss it. So I have selected a title called Read the Sign Carefully. And that came out of a guy named Tom Holliday. But I like that name, Read the Sign Carefully. Now those of you that have ever played professional or any kind of baseball, you'll notice if you're watching on television even, when they show you the scene, the camera is way back in the outfield and the bleachers and it shows you this long shot and it's showing you the catcher. And he's usually crouched, and I won't do that here, but usually crouched, and he's doing something with his fingers. Do you know what he's doing? He's sending signals or signs to the pitcher. Now there's a lot of reason for that. Usually the team will study the batter that's coming up. We know a little bit about the pitcher's strength and he's sending these signals knowing where in the ball game, where to throw that ball to catch the batter off guard. But there's also another reason. I used to be a catcher on a ball team. Now, I'm a small little league thing, but I remember this though, that if that pitcher could really throw the ball fast, but you didn't know where it was going, you'd have your glove over here and he's going to pitch it over there. And you've seen some of these guys that kind of see it off. Is the pitcher wild? Maybe, but sometimes it's because the catcher is sending a signal to the pitcher. And for whatever reason, they got their signals crossed. They got their signs crossed. Sometimes when you play baseball, there'll be a coach on each one of the sidelines, third base, first base, and they're sending in signals. You probably have seen them do that. Tug at the hat, do one of these things, do one of these. They're sending in signals and signs. If you miss that, it could blow that particular part of the game, maybe even the whole game, maybe the series, maybe the whole season. We don't know. But I know this, it's important for us in this context not to miss the sign and to read it very carefully. And maybe some of you have never played baseball, but it's quite possible, and here's how I could ask this to you. Have you ever missed the sign? You did not read it carefully and you went to the wrong place because you didn't do it carefully? How about another one? You looked at your airline ticket and you didn't read it carefully and you went to the wrong concourse or the wrong time or the wrong plane. Has that ever happened to you ever? Yep, some of you are nodding your head and that has happened to you. Well, it's okay if we miss the sign from the catcher. And it's okay if we might miss the sign, a street sign or maybe even the sign of what it says about an airplane. But it's never good to miss the sign when God puts a sign there and he wants us to read. I read a very funny but interesting story about a few years ago. They had found behind the wall, sealed up, bottles of wine. These wines were so valuable that even Malcolm Forbes in 1985 purchased one of those bottles of wine for $155,000. Well, one person who had that bottle, who owned that bottle, was so excited about what he had found because this bottle worth so much was because Thomas Jefferson authentically put his name on that bottle of wine. So he took this bottle to a party. So he has this bottle and he wants to show it off and across the room happened to be a baseball player. And this particular baseball player... Um, by the name of Rusty Staub, was looking at him and he held up the bottle and said, hey, I want to show you this. But the owner of that bottle of wine, walking over to Rusty, accidentally clipped it on the side of a chair. And he didn't shatter this $155,000 bottle of wine, but broke it enough so the wine began to leak out. Well, the owner was so embarrassed, he took the wine that was still dripping out of the little crack in the bottle and he set it down next to the coat rack and basically ran off. Well, the person at the restaurant saw that, went over there and he had to 
tick his finger and stick it into that wine that dripped down on that table over there because he wanted to taste the most expensive wine that there would ever be there. Later on, he took that home with him. Well, here's what that tells me. Some people would like to say, I've got this bottle of wine, and that's good. It might be worth a lot, but it'd be a tragic tragedy if we miss what this story about wine is really telling us today. And I don't want to miss that. In fact, Chuck Swindoll writes this. He says, The world's finest wine was not made in the vineyards of France, nor was it served in the finest international restaurant. It was made and served at an unpretentious wedding in Cana of Galilee 2,000 years ago. The wine is valued to this day, not for its rarity, but for what it reveals about its maker, Jesus Christ. So while we will talk about the water and the wine and all that was going on with the wedding and all that's important, I want to make sure that we still are lasered on the maker of all of this, the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see why that's important when we bring this message to a close. Well, if you have your Bibles, let me start taking us through this together and see what we might glean from this and maybe some background information as well. Beginning at verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Canaan. Now, when you read the word third day, it's kind of interesting because if you follow John chapter 1 and chapter 2, you're going to be following specific days. When the Lord speaks about days, He's putting it in Scripture to let you know that certain things are happening. In fact, help me with this. Let's do a little Bible trivia together. What book in the Bible begins with, in the beginning? Anybody know what book that is? What book? Genesis. But you also know from our study that the book of John begins with, in the beginning. And so sometimes Genesis and maybe even John could be typed together. Now, in the Gospel of John, you're going to find that the beginning of John, we start seeing the first week of the life of Christ. Also in John, we're going to see the last week of the life of Christ. Well, what happened in the first week that this talks about the third day? And I have that in your notes if you'd like to follow along. Day number one, John the Baptist was a little bit questioned about who he was. Day number two, John the Baptist begins to speak and point people to Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the earth, sin of the world. Day number three, John the Baptist introduces Andrew and John, and then Andrew brings Peter to Jesus. Day number four, Jesus finds Philip and Nathaniel, and we get to the end of day four. Now, this says day third of the third day. Some of you might be thinking, well, maybe that's the day that John the Baptist introduced John and Andrew and all of that. No, actually what's happening, you had four days in the first part of the week. Then you had a little bit of time off because the first part of the week happened around Jerusalem. But this is happening at Cana in Galilee. So it took a couple of days to get there. So this is the third day from the fourth day, making it the seventh day of that week. Now, there's something else that I thought was interesting. As he's going through all of these days and everything, it seems like that Jesus has a plan. He knows what he's doing. He goes here. This is happening. Everything is a part of a structure. But when you follow the life of Christ, only has three years to launch all of this, there's not one statement in here where Jesus was frazzled or rushed or in a hurry. He knew what he had to do. He prioritized his life, and he put those days together. Well, that's a whole sermon in itself, but maybe some of you might be thinking, the more I'm going to be like Christ, the less frazzled I'll be because I know what I'm going to do. I know this is what God wants me to do, and I'm going to do it at His speed. I'm not going to be lazy and then have to rush to catch up. I'm going to be methodical in doing what I really need to do. Well, let's go a little bit further. It says, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and His disciples were invited to the wedding. Well, there's a lot in that that you might want to know about some background information. This is helpful because you're going to see how significant when Jesus did this water into wine really is. Well, first of all, when it talks about Mary here, the big question is to be who would be at this wedding anyway? 
Well, Joseph is no longer mentioned. So either Joseph has died, which most people agree, believe has happened. I do. So now you look at Jesus' brothers and sisters, and they're all half-brothers and half-sisters because Jesus had a different father. He had an earthly father, Joseph, but he had a heavenly father. All right, so now there are seven in his family. And some of you that might like to know who they might be, these are guys that are in his family that you could find more about in Scripture. Two of them that you're most familiar with would be James. He wrote the book of James. Jude, known as Judas in the list, but not Judas Iscariot. There's another Judas in there, and he wrote the book of Jude. So he had four brothers, two sisters, and there's seven in the family with Mary. I think the other kids, along with the disciples, were at the wedding as well. Here's the reason why. Go down to verse 12. It says, he and his mother and his brothers and his disciples. So perhaps his half-sisters weren't there, but at least his half-brothers were there along with the disciples. Now here's a question for you. Which disciples were with him at this particular wedding? I believe it was the disciples that he just made right at the beginning of John. And you know who they would be? You'd find, first of all, John himself, then Andrew, then Peter, then Philip, and Nathaniel. So you had five disciples in Jesus. More than likely, you had his half-brothers, and you had Mary there. What is interesting is that Mary went on ahead, and then she invited them to come. Now, here's a question I haven't answered yet, and I just can give you some speculation. So have this on the way home today. Since this happened in the first week, and we pretty well believe that's what happened, it seems like these disciples became Jesus' buddies pretty quickly, and then all of a sudden, Mary is inviting them very shortly to a wedding. So these were almost like, Jesus, son, go ahead and bring your friends with you to this particular wedding. Now it would be good for you to know a little bit about the weddings that they had in the Bible. The weddings that they had in the Bible days and the Bible locations are a lot different than the weddings that we have here. When you use the term Western and Eastern, some of you know what that means. We are called Western, not, you know, I know we're, you know, west of, the, uh, west of California, but we're called the West. In the East or the Middle East, two different regions. So let's talk about our weddings here in the West. In the Western culture, generally everything is focused on the bride. Think about it for just a moment. Everything is about the brides and the bridesmaids and how much the wedding costs, what they're going to do, and everything is surrounding the bride. Often when I'm doing counseling, I am asked, how much input should the groom have and how much should the bride have? Sometimes I'll just simply say, guys, whatever she wants you to be a part of, you be a part of, but don't push your way in it because this wedding is all about her. However, the honeymoon is all about you. So you can plan that honeymoon experience. And you'll notice some weddings that we have here, even the Western culture, not so much here, but maybe, they'll have this big processional where, the, where a wonderful bride comes in, and when the wedding march is sounding, everybody rises, and they all face who? The groom? No, the bride. He usually kind of slithers out of a back room or stands up here at the front. That's our kind of wedding. But in the Bible days, it was a lot different. In the Bible days, you would get betrothed, or you would go into an engagement period. That was such a significant and yet serious contract that in order for you to break it, you'd have to go through a divorce experience. So that was really a committal. What didn't happen during that betrothal period of time was there was no intimacy with one another. They were to remain sexually pure. Now we're getting to the wedding day. The wedding day usually began at the bride's house. So you would go to the bride's house. There would be a lot of speeches giving, well wishes giving, a lot of hoopla going on up at the bride's house. But that still wasn't the big culmination. What then would happen, which seems similar with the bride coming down the aisle here, is that they would take a processional from the bride's home then to the groom's home. But really, it was at the groom's location that the real party, the real celebration really took place. That's where the wedding took place. This was just the pre-wedding. Then this would become the wedding. 
what would happen over at a bride's home would last maybe a couple of hours. Very similar to our receptions might last two or three hours. But in the groom's home in the Eastern culture, they would last sometimes a week, sometimes longer. That's why you'd have so many people. You'd have to feed all these people. You'd have to, I was going to say liquidate all these people. That's not the right word. You'd have to provide the refreshments for all those people. And it wouldn't be hard for sometimes them to run out of food or run out of liquid. In this case, it would often be wine. And I'll talk more about that a little bit later on. So that's the scene that's happening here. That's why it's happening at the groom's place. And this big party is going on. And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, all right, Jesus calls his guys he pulls them together, and now he's able to have his own coming out party for a moment. He's going to do his first miracle. Sometimes you would think if he's going to do this and he's really going to put his stamp on these guys, he'd do something really big, like heal somebody, you know, raise somebody from the dead. What does he do? He doesn't go to a hospital. He doesn't go to a graveyard. He goes to a what? A party. And the first thing he does is he takes water and he turns it into wine. Maybe it's after these guys seeing Jesus do that, they're thinking... He's a really good guy to follow, you know? This is going to be a real party animal over here. I don't know what they were thinking. I do know this. Jesus was going to show you two things that we're going to learn, two great truths at the end of this message. But he's going to take them to this party to do that. How wonderful it is. Now, stay with me when you're thinking about this. It said Mary invited Jesus and his disciples. Now, I don't know if you're thinking about getting married, but I hope that at your wedding ceremony and for the rest of your life, that you will invite Jesus Christ to be a part of it, all of it, into it. That whatever celebration you have during the planning of the event and the reception afterwards, that it would be a place where Jesus Christ would not only be invited, but that he would be invited perhaps as a guest, that we would see him as the Son of God, and even more than that, he would be the host, he would be the controller of all of this. That you would not leave the Lord out of the planning of your wedding, your marriage, your reception, and everything else so that your relationship is going to be centered on Jesus Christ. Well, let's go a little bit further in this because there's more to this story than just what we've learned here so far. So at verse 2 it says, And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Now some of you might be saying, Why would uh, she say something like that to him? Well, there could be a lot of reasons for that. It's similar to our culture here. That is, that when dad is gone no longer, the oldest, or we might say the firstborn, is the one who kind of takes up for the family. Years ago, I noticed how significant that was. When I pastored in San Antonio, Texas, we had a, a single mother, and she had two sons, and the father was just a left the family reprobate kind of situation thing. And so the boys grew up with the mom. And it happened so strongly that as the older brother, which... You know, it's just a few years older than the younger brother that the mother really counted on. Didn't do it because of the Bible saying so. It just did it because she needed somewhat of a man around the house. It got to be with this boy that she would have him do things that most men would do, such as make sure the house was locked up, make sure all the trash was taken out. When you'd pull up at a gas station, he would be the first to jump out and make sure that the tank was filled. None of that is bad, but it became so close that there was this dependency upon one another. Well, it was a tragic event because after a midweek service that we had, Carol and I were about ready to leave. The phone call rang at the church. It was before cell phones. And I heard from the hospital that both of the boys were on tandem riding a skateboard and a cul-de-sac. And they went down mom's driveway into the cul-de-sac. What happened was a gal who should not have been driving because she was mentally challenged, didn't even have a license, sped through that little neighborhood, down through the cul-de-sac, ran through the light, and nailed both of those boys. 
They had to lift the car off of both of them. They were so traumatized through this. One boy went to one hospital. The boy that was the most severe went to Brooks Army Medical Hospital where the trauma unit was. They asked us to go to that hospital first because the boy died there. And we were asked to be with the mother as she was having to identify the body of this boy. Again, that's the firstborn. The other boy lived and went to that hospital and the rest is history. The point I'm simply making is usually the older one becomes the firstborn that takes over a little bit more. And so now there's a problem. We're noticing all these people. I don't know how long the celebration was. They're out of wine. Mary knows something about this. She knows a lot about her son. She heard about having the son before she had the son. She watched the son grow up. Having a son that never did any sin. You can imagine what that was like. Now he's, and he says, we got a problem. There's no wine. Well, there's the problem. So notice what Jesus then He responds to that statement, they have no wine. She didn't do any more than that. She just says, they have no wine. Now, a lot of Bible scholars are implying that, okay, we know a lot about you. We know that you're Jesus, she's saying in his mind, and you're going to be the Messiah, and maybe you could do something really big right now because of who you are. We'd like you to be the one that will set up the kingdom, kick out the Romans, and let's have a big ruling, uh, the Jews being in charge again and all of that. She just simply says, they have no wine. Now, verse 4 is really interesting, and unfortunately, in the English, it does not do the best justice to it in the Hebrew language and the Greek language. So I want you to go through this very carefully in English, and then I'm going to try to show you what it would say in the original language of Greek. It goes like this. So Jesus responds to her statement, they have no wine, and says, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now there's three areas. First of all, he addresses her not as mom, or mommy, or mother, He just simply says, woman. Now, it'd almost be like, hey, woman, there's a woman over there. She's getting on the bus. Can you see her get on the bus? So distant that that's all it is, just another woman in the party. But in this language, in this particular Greek word, it's not just the word woman like she's a female that's older. It's more like it's a dignified term. We would use the word ma'am. When my mom would ask me to do something, we were were taught to say to her, yes, ma'am. We were taught as a younger boy growing up when older women would say something to us, we would say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, yes, sir, no, sir. How many of you have been taught that? Would you raise your hand? All right. This would be very similar to the idea of saying ma'am. It was very endearing. It was very respectful. But, but, there still was the distance. He was now distancing himself. Yes, you are a woman. Yes, you are a ma'am, a significant a significant special woman, but right now I need to see you not as my mother speaking to me, but as a special lady only. So there's a little bit of a distance. Now go a little bit further here. In that verse it says, what does that have to do with us? Literally it means this, what to me and to you. In other words, you have your idea of what needs to be done about the wine, and I have my idea what I'm going to do about the wine. They're different, and my time has not yet come, which is the third thing, saying, I'm not ready yet to reveal myself as the King of kings and the Lord of lords because my time hasn't come yet. Pause. Stay with me. That phrase, my hour hasn't come, my time hasn't come, is found at least five times in this one gospel alone and it's salt and peppered all throughout the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, saying my time has not yet come, implying I am not yet ready to go to the cross and to have my great resurrection occur and for me to continue this. It's not yet that time. So, lady, you want me to do this? Yes, ma'am, but I also have my own distinctive program, my own plan that's going to take place shortly. So it's not really a put-down. It's more of an explanation to her of what's about to happen. So then notice what his mother says 
doesn't rebuke him. She doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't rebuke her. His mother then turns and says to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, some of you come from a background where there's a lot of what we might call, and I'm going to say this in not a pejorative term, but more in a respectful term, but more of a descriptive term. It's called Mariology. It's almost like the study of Mary or Mariolatry. It's almost the worship of Mary where that most everything we do goes through the person of Mary, the mother of Jesus. In fact, we go through Mary to get to God in that particular religion or mindset. And so all of it is, what does Mary say? This is something that is very, very subtle but is really showing you the little bit different distinctive of this. We who are of the Christian faith we see the significance of Mary as being that special woman that God selected to have Jesus Christ come from into this world. But we still recognize that Jesus Christ will always trump Mary. So in this verse, there's a subtle statement that you don't want to miss that will help us to put worship of Christ above the worship of Mary, the study of Christ above the study of Mary. And that is when she says... All right, servants, it's not about you doing what I tell you to do. It's about you doing what Jesus tells you to do. So very carefully, whatever Mary might say to us is, again, only doing what we should say to one another. It's not about us. What we want you to do is look to Jesus and do what he has to say. So all these are nothing more than players in a bigger drama where Jesus Christ is truly the superstar. So we look to Christ and Christ alone. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.